Chapter 3 of The Galaxy Primes by E. E. Doc Smith. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Galaxy Primes Chapter 3 Lola and Garlock went to town in the same taxi. As they were about to separate, Garlock said, I don't like those hell divers, yellow, green, or any other color and you, Brownie, are very definitely not expendable. Are you any good at mind-bombing? Why, I never heard of such a thing. You isolate a little energy in the op-field, remembering, of course, that you're handling a hundred thousand guns. Transpose it into platinum or uranium, anything good and heavy. For one of these monsters you'd need two or three micrograms, for a battleship up to maybe a gram or so. Port it to the exact place you want it to detonate. Reconvert and release instantaneously. One hundred percent conversion atomic bomb, tailored exactly to fit the job. Very effective. It would be. My God, Clee, can you do that? Sure, so can you. Any operator can. Well, I won't. I never will. Besides, I'd probably kill too many people besides the monster— no, I'll port back to the main if anything attacks me. I'm chain lightning at that. Do that, then, and if anything very unusual happens, give me a flash. I'll do that. Bye, Clee. She turned to the left. He walked straight on, toward the business center, to resume his study at the point where he had left off the evening before. For over an hour he wandered aimlessly about the city, receiving, classifying, and filing away information. He saw several duels between guardians and yellow and green bat-monsters, to none of which he paid any more attention than did the people around him. Then a third kind of enemy appeared, two of them at once, flying wing and wing, and Garlock stopped and watched. Vivid, clear-cut stripes of red and black, even on the tremendously long, strong wings— distinctly feline as to heads, teeth, and claws. While they did not at all closely resemble flying saber-toothed tigers, that was the first impression that leapt into Garlock's mind. Two bow-legged guardians came leaping as usual, but one of them was a fraction of a second too late. That fraction was enough. While the first guardian was still high in the air, grappling with one tiger, the other swung on a dime the blast of air from its right wing blowing the people in the crowd below thither and yon and knocking four of them flat, and took the guardian's head off his body with one savage swipe of a frightfully armed paw. Disregarding the carcass, both attackers whirled sharply at the second guardian, meeting him in such a fashion that he could not come to firm grips with either of them, and that battle was very brief indeed. More and more guardians were leaping in from all directions, however, and the two tigers were forced to the ground and slaughtered. Since six guardians had been killed, eight guardians marched up the street dragging grisly loads. Eight bodies, friend and foe alike, were dumped into a manhole. Eight creatures squatted down and cleaned themselves meticulously before resuming their various patrols. Ten or fifteen minutes later, Garlock felt Lola's half-excited, half-frightened thought, "'Clee, do you read me?' loud and clear. There's something coming that's certainly none of my business, maybe not even yours. Coming, and with the thought he was there. Where? 
She pointed a thought, he followed it. Far away yet, but coming fast, was an immense flock of flying tigers. Lola licked her lips. I'm going home, if you don't mind. Beat it. She disappeared. Jim, Garlock thought. Where are you? Observatory. Need me? Yes. Bombing. Two point four microgram loads. Focus spot on my right. Teleport in. Coming in on your right. And I on your left. Bell's thought drove in as he had never before felt it driven. Being a prime, she did not need a focus spot and appeared the veriest instant later than did James. "'Can you bomb?' Garlock snapped. "'What do you think?' she snapped back. A moment of flashing thought, and the three Tellurians disappeared, materializing five hundred feet in air, two hundred feet ahead of the van of that horrible flight of monsters drifting before it. Bell got in the first shot. Not only did the victim disappear, a couple of dozen around it were torn to fragments, and the force of the blast staggered all three Tellurians. "'Damn it, Bell! Cut down or get to hell out!' Garlock yelped. "'I said two point four micrograms, not milligrams. Just kill em. Don't scatter em all over hell's half-acre. Less mess to clean up, and I don't want you to kill people down below. Especially, I don't want you to kill us.' not even yourself. Excuse, please. I guess I was a bit enthusiastic in my weighing. There began a series of muffled explosions along the front, each followed by the plunge of a tiger-striped body to the ground. Faster and faster the explosions came as the operator and the primes learned the routine and the rhythm of the job. Nor were they alone. The roaring, screaming howl of jets came up from behind them, Four Arpalones appeared at their left, strung out along the front. Each held an extraordinarily heavy-duty blaster in each of his four hands. Sixteen terrific weapons were hurling death into the flying horde. "'Slide over, terrestrials,' came a calm thought. "'You three take their left front, we'll take their right and center.' As they obeyed the instructions, "'They don't give a damn where the pieces fly,' Bell protested. Why should we be fussy about their street-cleaning department? I'm starting to use fives. Okay, we'll have to hit em harder anyway to keep up. Five or maybe six. Just be damn sure not to knock us or the Arpalones out of the air. Carnage went on. The battlefront, while inside the city limits, was now almost stationary. Ha! Help! I hear footsteps approaching on jetback, Garlock announced. Give em hell, boys! Shovel on the coal. A flight of fighter planes, eight abreast and wingtips almost touching, howled close overhead and along the line of invasion. They could not fire, of course, until they reached the city limits. There they opened up as one, and the air below became literally filled with falling monsters. Some had only broken wings. Some were dead, but more or less whole. Many were blown to unrecognizable bits and scraps of flesh. Another flight screamed into place immediately behind the first, then another and another and another, until six flights had passed. Then came four helicopters, darting and hovering, whose gunners picked off individually whatever survivors had managed to escape all six waves of fighters. "'That's better,' came a thought from the Arpalone nearest Garlock. "'Situation under control, thanks to you Tellurians. Supposed to be two squads of us gunners, but the other squad was busy on another job. 
Without you, this could have developed into a fairly nasty little infection. I don't know what you're doing or how you're doing it. We were told that you weren't like any other humans and how true that is, but I'm in favor of it. I thought there were four of you. One of us is not a fighter. Oh, you can knock off now, if you like. We'll polish off. Thanks much. But don't the boys on the ground need some help? The Arpales? Those idiots you have been thinking of as guardians? Which they are, of course. Uh-uh. Besides, we're air fighters. Groundwork is none of our business. Also, these guns would raise altogether too much hell down there. Bound to hit some humans. Check. Those Arpales aren't very intelligent. You Arpalones are extremely so. Any connection? Way back, they say. Common ancestry, and doing two parts of the same job. Killing these Fumaptis and Limarts and Senkors and what have you. I don't know what humanity's job is, and don't give a damn. Probably fairly important, some way or other, though, since it's our job to see that the silly, gutless things keep on living. We have nothing to do with them, ever. The only reason I'm talking to you is you're not really human at all. You're a fighter, too, and a damn good one. I know what you mean. And the three Tellurians turned their attention downward to the scene on the ground. The heaviest fighting had been over a large park at the city's edge, which was now literally a shambles. Very few people were to be seen, and those few more moving unconcernedly away from the center of violence. All over the park, thousands of Arpales were fighting furiously, and hundreds of them were dying. For hundreds of the Senkors had suffered only wing injuries, the long fall to ground had not harmed them further, and their tremendous fighting ability had been lessened very little, if at all. But I think, just for efficiency if nothing else, Garlock argued, you'd support the Arpale some way. Lighter guns or something? Why, thousands of them must have been killed just in this last hour or so. Yeah, but that's their business. They breed fast and die fast. Everything has to balance, you know. Perhaps so. Garlock was silenced, if not convinced. Well, it's about over. What happens to the bodies they're dumping down manholes? They can't go down a sewer that way. Oh, you didn't know? Food. Food? For what? The Arpales and us, of course. What? You don't mean... You can't mean that they... And by your thought, you Arpalones, too, are cannibals. Cannibals? Explain, please. Oh, eaters of our own species. Of course, certainly. Why not? Why, self-respect, common decency, respect for one's fellow man, family ties. Garlock was floundering. To be called upon to explain his ingrained antipathy to such a custom was new to his experience. You are silly, worse, squeamish, worst, supremely illogical. The Arpalone paused, then went on as though trying to educate a hopelessly illogical inferior. While we do not kill Arpales purposely, except when they overbreed, why waste good meat as fertilizer? If a diet is wholesome, nutritious, well-balanced, and tasty, what shred of difference can it possibly make what its ingredients once were? Well, I'll be damned. Garlock quit. Bell agreed. 
this whole deal makes me sick at the stomach, and I think my face is turning green, too. But I'm devilishly and gleefully glad, Clee, that I was here to hear somebody give you cards, spaces, and a big casino, and still beat the lights and liver out of you at your own game of cold-blooded logic. We gunners must go now. Would you like to come along with us and see the end of this particular breeding-hold of Sencor's? At high speed, the seven flew back along the line of advance of the flying tiger horde, across a barren valley, toward and to the side of a mountain. An area almost a mile square of that mountain side was a burned, blasted, churned, pocked, cratered, and flaming waste, and the four helicopters were still working on it. High-energy beams blasted, fairly volatizing the ground as they struck in as deep as they could be driven. High-explosive shells bored deep and detonated, hurling shattered rock and soil and yellow smoke far and wide, establishing new craters by destroying the ones existing a moment before. While it seemed incredible that any living creature larger than a microbe could emerge under its own power from such a hell of energy, many flying tigers did, apparently being blown aloft along with the hitherto undisturbed volume of soil in which the creatures had been. Most of them were not fully grown, some were so immature as to be unrecognizable to an untrained eye, but from all four helicopters handguns snapped and cracked. Nothing but nothing was leaving that field of carnage alive. "'What are you gunners supposed to be doing here?' Garlock asked. "'Oh, the copters will be leaving pretty soon. They've got other places to go. But they won't get them all. Some of the hatches are too deep.' so us four gunners will stick around for two, three days to kill the late hatchers as they come out. I see, and Garlock probed. There are four cells they won't reach. Shall I bomb them out? I'll ask. The slitted red eyes widened, and he sent a call. Commander Knarr, can you hop over here a minute? I want you to meet these things we've been hearing about. They look human, but they really aren't. They're killers with more stuff and more brains than any of us ever heard of. Another Arpalone appeared, indistinguishable to Tellurian eyes from any one of the others. But why do you want to mix into something that's none of your business? Kunar was neither officious nor condemnatory. He simply could not understand. Since you have no concept of our quality of curiosity, just call it education. The question is... Do or do you not want those four deeply buried cells blasted out of existence? Of course I do. Okay. You've got all of them you're going to get. Tell your copters to give us about five miles clearance, and we'll all fall back, too. They drew back, and there were four closely spaced explosions of such violence that one raggedly mushroom-shaped cloud went into the stratosphere— and one huge ragged crater yawned where once churned ground had been. "'But that's atomic!' Kanar gasped the thought. "'Fallout!' "'No fallout. Complete conversion. Have you got a counter?' They had. They tested. There was nothing except the usual background count. "'There's no life left underground, so you needn't keep this squad of gunners tied up here,' Garlock told the commander." Before we go, I want to ask a question. You have visitors once in a while from other solar systems, so you must have a faster-than-light drive. Can you tell me anything about it? 
No, nothing like that would be any of my business. Kanar and the four gunners disappeared. The helicopters began to lumber away. Well, that helps. I don't think, Garlock thought glumly. What a world! Back to the main? In the main, after a long and fruitless discussion, Garlock called Governor Adderlin, who did not know anything about a faster-than-light drive either. There was one, of course, since it took only a few days or a few weeks to go from one system to another, but Hodel didn't have any such ships. No ordinary planet did. They were owned and operated by people who called themselves engineers. He had no idea where the engineers came from. They didn't say. Garlock then tried to get in touch with the Arpalone inspector who had checked the Pleiades in, and could not find out even who it had been. The inspector then on duty neither knew nor cared anything about either faster-than-light drives or engineers. Such things were none of his business. "'What difference would it make, anyway?' James asked. "'No drive that takes a few weeks for an intra-galaxy hop is ever going to get us back to Tellus.' "'True enough. But if there is such a thing, I want to know how it works. How are you coming with your calculations?' I'll finish up tomorrow easily enough. Tomorrow came and James finished up, but he did not find any familiar pattern of galactic arrangement. The other three watched James set up for another try for Earth. You don't think we'll ever get back, do you, Clee? Bell asked. Right away, no. Some day, yes. I've got the germ of an idea. Maybe three or four more hops will give me something to work on. I hope so, James said, because here goes nothing, and he snapped the red switch. It was not nothing. Number two was another guardian inspector and another planet very much like Hodel. It proved to be so far from both Earth and Hodel, however, that no useful similarities were found in any two of the three sets of charts. Number three was equally unproductive of helpful results. James did, however, improve his technique of making galactic charts, and he and Garlock designed and built a high-speed comparator. Thus the time required per stop was reduced from days to hours. Number four produced a surprise. When Garlock touched the knob of the testing box, he yanked his hand away before it had really made contact. It was like touching a high-voltage wire. You are incompatible with our humanity and must not land, the inspector ruled. Suppose we blast you and your jets out of the air and land anyway, Garlock asked. That is perhaps possible, the inspector agreed, equably enough. We are not invincible. However, it would do you no good. If any one of you four leaves that so heavily insulated vessel in the atmosphere of this planet, you will die. Not quickly, but slowly, and with difficulty. "'But you haven't tested me,' Bell said. "'Do you mean they'll attack us on sight?' "'There is no need to test more than one. Anyone who could live near any of you could not live on this planet. Nor will they attack you. Don't you know what the thought incompatible means? With us it does not mean death. Here it does, since it refers to life forces. The types are mutually, irreconcilably antagonistic. Your life forces are very strong. 
Thus, no matter how peaceable your intentions may be, many of our human beings would die before you would. But you will not live to get back to your ship if you land it and leave its protective insulation." "'Why? What is it? How does it work?' Bell demanded. "'It is not my business to know, only to tell. I have told. You will go away now.' Garlock's eyes narrowed in concentration. Bell, can you blast? I mean, could you if you wanted to?" Certainly. Why, I don't want to, Clee. I don't either, and I'll file that one away to chew on when I'm hungry some night, too. Take her up, Jim, and try another shot. Numbers five to nine inclusive were neither productive nor eventful. All were, like the others, Hodel all over again, in everything fundamental. One was so far advanced that almost all of its humanity were seconds, one so backward, or so much younger, that its strongest telepaths were only fours. The Tellurians became acquainted with, and upon occasion fought with, various types of man-sized monsters in addition to the three varieties they had seen on Hodel. Every planet they visited had Arpalones and Arpales, not by those names, of course, Local names for planets, guardians, nations, cities, and persons went into the starship's tapes, but the welter of names need not be given here. This is not a catalogue. Every planet they visited was peopled by Homo sapiens, capable of interbreeding with the Tellurians and eager to do so, especially with the Tellurian men. Their strict monogamy was really tested more than once, but it held. Each had been visited repeatedly by starships but all Garlock could find out about them was that they probably came from a world somewhere that was inhabited by compatible human beings of grade two. He could learn nothing about the faster-than-light drive. Number ten was another queer. The Tellurians were found incompatible. "'Let's go down anyway,' Bell suggested. "'Overcome this unwillingness of ours and find out. What do you think they have got down there, Clee Garlock, that could possibly handle you and me both?' I don't think it's a case of handling at all. I don't know what it is, but I believe it's fatal. We won't go down." "'But it doesn't make sense,' Bell protested. "'Not yet, no. But it's a datum. Enough data, and we'll be able to formulate a theory. You and your theories. I wish we could get some facts.' "'You can call that a fact. But I want you and Jim to do some math. We know that we're making mighty long jumps. Assuming that we're at perfect random, and of approximately the same length, the probability is greater than one-half that we're getting farther and farther away from Tellus. Is there a jump number, n, at which the probability is one-half that we land nearer Tellus instead of farther away? My jump at conclusion's guess is that there isn't. That the first jump set up a bias. Ouch! That isn't in any of the books," James said. In other words, do we or do we not attain a maximum? You're making some bum assumptions. Among others, that space isn't curved and that the dimensions of the universe are very large compared to the length of our jumps. I'll see if I can put it into shape to feed to copy. You've always held that these generators work at random. The rest of these assumptions are based on your theory. Check. I'm not getting anywhere studying my alleged xenology, 
So I'm going to work full-time on designing a generator that will steer. You tried to before. So did everybody else. I know it, but I've got a lot more data now, and I'm not promising, just trying. Okay? Worth a try? Sure. I'm in favor of anything that has any chance at all of working. Jumping went on, and Garlock, instead of going abroad on the planets, stayed in the Pleiades and worked. At number 43 their reception was of a new kind. They were compatible with the people of this world, but the inspector advised them against landing. "'I do not forbid you,' he explained carefully. "'Our humans are about to destroy themselves with fission and fusion bombs. They send missiles, without warning, against visitors. Thus the last starship to visit us here disregarded my warning and sent down a sensing device as usual. Engineers do not land on non-telepathic worlds, you know, and it was destroyed." "'You're a guardian of humanity,' Garlock said. "'Can't you straighten people out?' "'Of course not!' The Arpalone was outraged. "'We guard humanity against incompatibles and non-humans, but it is not our business to interfere with humanity if it wishes to destroy itself. That is its privilege and its own business.' Garlock probed down. No telepathy even, not even a seven. This planet is backward, back to year one. And nothing but firecrackers. We're going down, aren't we? I'll say we are, Bell said. This will break the monotony, at least. And the others agreed. You won't object, I take it, Garlock said to the inspector. If we try to straighten them out, we can postpone the blow-up a few years at least. No objections, of course. In fact, I can say that we guardians of humanity would approve such action." Down the Pleiades went, into the air of the nation known as the Allied Republican Democracies of the World, and an atomic war-headed rocket came flaming up. Hmm! Ingenious little gadget at that, James reported, after studying it thoroughly. Filthy thing for fallout, though, if it goes off. Where'll I flip it, Clee? One of their moons? Check. Third one out. No chance of any contamination from there. The missile vanished. And had any astronomer been looking at that world's third and outermost moon at the moment, he might have seen a tremendous flash of light, a cloud of dust, and the formation of a new and different crater among the hundreds already there. No use waiting for em, Jim. All three of you toss everything they've got out onto that same moon, being sure not to hurt anybody, yet. I'll start asking questions." The captain who had fired the first missile appeared in the main. He reached for his pistol to find that he did not have one. He tensed his muscles to leap at Garlock to find that he could not move. Garlock drove his probe. "'Who is your superior officer?' and before the man could formulate a denial that superior stood helpless beside him. Then three and four. At the fifth. Oh, you are the man I want. Prime Minister, euphemism for dictator, Sovig. Missile launching stations and missile storage? You don't know? Who does? Another man appeared, and for twenty minutes the Pleiades darted about the continent. Now submarines, atomic and otherwise, and all surface vessels capable of launching missiles. Another man appeared. 
This job took a little longer, since the crew of each vessel had to be teleported back to their bases. An immense scrap pile, probably visible with a telescope of even moderate power, built up rapidly on the third moon. Now, a complete list of your uranium refining plants, your military reactors, heavy water and heavy hydrogen plants, and so on. Another man appeared, but the starship did not move. Here is a list of plants, and Garlock named them coldly. You will remember them. I will return you to your office, and you may, or may not as you please, order them evacuated. Look at your watch. We start destroying them in exactly seventy-two of your hours from this moment. Any and all persons on the properties will be killed. Any within a radius of ten of your miles may be killed. Our explosives are extremely powerful, but there is no radioactivity and no danger from the fallout. The danger is from flash blindness, flash burn, sheer heat, shock wave, concussion, and flying debris of all kinds. The officer vanished, and Garlock turned back to the Prime Minister. You have an ally, a nation known as the Brotherhood of People's Republics. Where is its capital? Slide us over there, Jim. Now, Prime Minister Sovig, you and your ally, the second and first most populous nations of your world, are combining to destroy, a pincer's movement, let us say, the third largest nation, or rather, group of nations, the nations of the North. Oh, I see third only in population, but first in productive capacity and technology. They should be destroyed because their ideology does not agree with yours. They are too idealistic to strike first, so you will. After you strike, they will not be able to, whereupon you, personally, will rule the world. I will add to that something you are not thinking, but should. You will rule it until one of your friends puts his pistol to the back of your neck and blows your brains out." They were now over the Allies' capital, which launched five missiles instead of one. Garlock collected four more men and studied them. "'Just as bad, if possible, worse. Who, Linganor, is the leader of your opposition, if any?' Another man, very evidently of the same race, appeared. Idealistic in a way, but spineless and corrupt, Garlock announced to all. His administration was one of the most corrupt ever known on this world. We'll disarm them, too. They did. The operation did not take very long. As this nation, or group, it was not very clear exactly what it was, while very high in manpower, was very low in technology. The starship moved to a station high above the capitol building of the nations of the north, and moved slowly downward until it hung poised one scant mile over the building. Missiles, jets, and heavy guns were set and ready, but no attack was made. Therefore, Garlock introduced himself to various personages and invited them aboard instead of snatching them, nor did he immobilize them after they had been teleported aboard. The President, the Chief of Staff, the Chief Justice, the most eminent scientist, the head of a church, the leaders of the legislative body and four political bosses, the biggest businessman, biggest labor leader, and biggest gangster. Fourteen men. As Garlock studied them, his face hardened. I thought to leave your nations armed, to entrust this world's future to you, but no. Only two of you are really concerned about the welfare of your peoples, and one of those two is very weak. 
Most of you are of no higher motivation than are the two dictators and your gangster Clyden. You are much better than those we have already disarmed, but you are not good enough." Garlock's hard eyes swept over the group for two minutes before he went on. I am opening all of your minds, friend and foe alike, to each other, so that you may all see for yourselves what depths of rottenness exist there and just how unfit your world is to associate with the decent worlds of this or any other galaxy. It would take God Himself to do anything with such material, and I am not God. Therefore, when we have rid this world of atomics, we will leave, and you will start all over again. If you really try, you can not only kill all animal life on your planet, but make it absolutely uninhabitable for— Stop it, Clee! Lola jumped up, her eyes flashing. Garlock dropped the tuned group, but Bell took it over. Everyone there understood every thought. Don't you see? You've done enough. That now you're going too far? That these twenty-odd men, having had their minds open and having been given insight into what is possible, will go forward instead of backward? Forward, with such people as the prime ministers, the labor and business leaders, the bosses and the gangsters to cope with? Do you think they've got spines stiff enough for the job? I'm sure of it. Our world did it with no better. Millions and millions of other worlds did it. Why can't this one do it? Of course it can. May I ask a couple of questions? This thought came from the tall, trim, soldierly chief of staff. Of course, General Cordine. We have all been taking it for granted that you four belong to some superhuman race, some kind or other of homo superior. Do I understand correctly your thought that your race is homo sapiens, the same as ours? Why, of course it is, Lola answered in surprise. The only difference is that we are a few thousand years older than you are. You said also that there were millions and millions of worlds that have solved the problems facing us. Were all these worlds also peopled by homo sapiens? It seems incredible. True, nevertheless. On any and every world of this type, humanity is identical physically and the mental differences are due only to their being in different stages of development. In fact, every planet we have visited except this one makes a regular custom of breeding its best blood with the best blood of other solar systems. And as to the millions and millions, I met only a very large but indefinite number. As far as I know, not even a rough estimate has ever been made, has there, Clee? No but it will probably turn out to be millions of millions, instead of millions and millions, and squared and then cubed at that. My guess is that it'll take another ten thousand years of preliminary surveying such as we're doing, by all the crews the various Galaxian societies can put out, before even the roughest kind of an estimate can be made as to how many planets are inhabited by mutually fertile human peoples." For a moment the group was stunned. Then. Do you mean to say, asked the merchant prince, that you Galaxians are not the only ones who have interstellar travel? Far from it. In fact, yours is the only world we have seen that does not have it in one form or another. Oh, more than one way? That makes it still worse. Would you be willing to sell us plans or lease us ships? 
so that you could exploit other planets? We will not. You would get nowhere, even if you had an interstellar drive right now. You, personally, are a perfect example of what is wrong with this planet. Rapacious, insatiable. You violate every concept of ethics, common decency, and social responsibility. Your world's technology is so far ahead of its sociology that you not only should be, but actually are being held in quarantine. What? Exactly. One race I know of has been inspecting you regularly for several hundreds of your years. They will not make contact with you or allow you to leave your own world until you grow up to something beyond the irresponsible baby stage. Thus, about two and one-half of your years ago, a starship of that race sent down a sensing element, unmanned, of course, to check your state of development. Brother Sovik volatized it with an atomic missile. We did not do it, the dictator declared. It was the warmongering capitalists. You brainless, mindless, contemptible idiot, Garlock sneered. Are even you actually stupid enough to try to lie with your mind? To minds linked to your own and to mine? We did do it then, but it was only a flying saucer. Just as this ship was to you only a flying saucer, I suppose. So here's something else for you to think about, Brother Sovig, with whatever power your alleged brain is able to generate. When you shot down that sensor, the starship did not retaliate, but went on without taking any notice of you. When you tried to shoot us down, we took some slight action, but did not kill anyone and are now discussing the situation. Listen carefully now, and remember. It is very possible that the next craft you attack in such utterly idiotic fashion will, without any more warning than you gave, blow this whole planet into a ball of incandescent gas. Can that actually be done? the scientist asked. For the first time he became really interested in the proceedings. Very easily, Dr. Cheswick, Garlock replied. We could do it ourselves with scarcely any effort and at very small cost. You are familiar, I suppose, with the phenomenon of ball lightning? Somewhat. Its mechanism has never been elucidated in any very satisfactory mathematics. Well, we have at our disposal a field some— Hold it, Clee, James warned. Do you want to put out that kind of stuff around here? Um, what do you think? James studied Cheswick's mind. Better than I thought, he decided. He has made two really worthwhile intuitions, a genius type. He's been working on what amounts almost to the coupler theory for ten years. He's almost got it. But you know intuitions of that caliber can't be scheduled. He might get it tomorrow, or never. I'd say push him over the hump. Okay with me. We'll take a vote. One black ball kills it. Brownie? Just the link, of course. A few hints, perhaps, at application, but no technological data. I say give it to him. He's earned it. Besides, he isn't young and may die before he gets it, and that will lose them two or three hundred years. Bell? In favor. Shall I drop the linkage? No, she answered her own question. No other minds here will have any idea of what it means, and it may do some of them a bit of good to see one of their own minds firing on more than one barrel. Thank you, Galaxians, 
The scientist's mind had been quivering with eagerness. I am inexpressibly glad that you have found me worthy of so much help. Garlock entered Cheswick's mind. First he impressed, indelibly, six symbols and their meanings. Second, a long and intricate equation, which the scientist studied avidly. During the ensuing pause, Garlock cut the President and Chief of Staff out of the linkage. We have just given Cheswick a basic formula. In a couple of hundred years it will give you full telepathy, and then you will begin really to go up. There is nothing secret about it. In fact, I'd advise full publication. But even so, it might be a smart idea to give him both protection and good working conditions. Brains like his are apt to be centuries apart on any world. But this is—it could be—it must be! Cheswick exclaimed. I never would have formulated that. It isn't quite implicit, of course, but from this there derives the existence of, and the necessity for, electrogravitics, an entirely new field of reality and experiment in science." There does indeed, Garlock admitted, and it is far indeed from being implicit. You leapt a tremendous gap, and yes, the resultant is more humanistic than technological. Bell's ear-splitting whistle resounded throughout the main. "'How do you like them tidbits, Clee?' she asked. Two hundred years and seventy-eight seconds? You folks will have telepathy by the time your present crop of babies grows up. Clee, aren't you sorry you got mad and blew your top and wanted to pick up your marbles and go home? Three such intuitions in one man's lifetime beats par, even for the genius course.' "'It sure does.' Garlock admitted ruefully. I should have studied these minds, particularly his, before jumping at conclusions. "'May I say a few words?' the President asked. "'You may indeed, sir. I was hoping you would.' "'We have been discouraged, faced with an insoluble problem. Sovig and Linganor, knowing that their own lives were forfeit anyway, were perfectly willing to destroy all the life on this world to make us yield. Now, however, with the insight and the encouragement you Galaxians have given us, the situation has changed. Reduced to ordinary high explosives, they cannot conquer us." "'Especially without an air force,' Lola put in. "'I personally will see to it that every bomber and fighter plane they now have goes to the third moon. It will be your responsibility to see to it that they do not rebuild.' "'Thank you, Miss Montandon we will see to it. As for our internal difficulties, I think, under certain conditions, they can be handled. Our lawless element—he glanced at the gangster—can be made impotent. The corrupt practices of both capital and labor can be stopped. We have laws—here he looked at the members of Congress and the judge—which can be enforced. The conditions I mention would be difficult at the moment, since so few of us are here, and it is manifest that few if any of our people will believe that such people as you Galaxians really exist. Would it be possible for you, Miss Montandon, to spend a few days, or whatever time you can spare, in showing our Congress, and as many other groups as possible, what humanity may hope to become?" "'Of course, sir. I was planning on it.' "'I am afraid that is impossible.' the Chief of Staff said. 
Why, General Cardine? Lola asked. Because you'd be shot, Cardine said bluntly. We have a very good secret service, it is true, and we would give you every protection possible, but such an all-out effort as would be made to assassinate you would almost certainly succeed. Shot? Garlock asked in surprise. What with? You haven't anything that could even begin to crack an operator's shield. With this, sir, Cardine held out his automatic pistol for inspection. Oh, I hadn't studied it. A pellet projector. Pellet? Do you call a 475 slug a pellet? Not much of that, really. It shoots eight times. Shoot all eight of them at her. None of them will touch her. What? I will not. One of those slugs will go through three women like her, front to back in line. I will then. The pistol leapt into Garlock's hand. Hold up one hand, Brownie, and catch him. Don't let him splash. No deformation, so he can recognize his own pellets. Holding the unfamiliar weapon in a clumsy, highly unorthodox grip, something like a schoolgirl's first attempt, Garlock glanced once at Lola's upraised palm, and eight shots roared out as fast as the gases of explosion could operate the mechanism. The pistol's barrel remained rigidly motionless under all the stress of ultra-rapid fire. Lola's slim, deeply tanned arm did not even quiver under the impact of that storm of heavy bullets against her apparently unsupported hand. No one saw the bullets strike that gently curved right palm, but everyone saw them drop into her cupped left hand, like drops of water dripping rapidly from the end of an icicle into a bowl. "'Here are your pellets, General Cardine. Lola handed them to him with a smile. "'Holy jumping snakes!' the general said, and, "'What a torpedo!' came the gangster's envious thought. "'You see, I am perfectly safe from being shot, as you call it,' Lola said. "'So I'll come down and work with you. You might have your news services put out a bulletin, though. I never have killed anyone, and am not going to here, but anyone who tries to shoot me or bomb me or anything will lose both hands at the wrists just before he fires.' That would keep them from killing anyone standing near me, don't you think?" I should think it would, General Cordine thought, and a pall of awe covered the linked minds. The implications of the naively frank remark just uttered by this apparently inoffensive and defenseless young woman were simply too overwhelming to be discussed. "'Anything else on the agenda, Clee?' Lola asked. There was not, and the starship's guests were returned, each to his own home place. And not one of them, it may be said, was exactly the same as he had been. End of chapter 3